been to Germany? What what do universities look like there? I mean, what's different, I guess? Well, where I come from, it's uh, like a medieval city. Like the city center is very old. <laughs> wow. I want to hear more about this medieval medieval oh. world that you live in because really i didn't even know you had coffee until today ron uh, they have on, coffee up. in germany <laughs> well the way you guys play soccer had me doubting that you guys were really a first world country so um anyway <laughs> well that's right um this year was kind of bad kind of embarrassing at <laughs> yeah, the world. it was not as embarrassing as costa rica though guys come on let's be honest yeah. we were the 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 shit show of the world cup (laughs) (laughs) all right so yeah the the difference actually carl let me um uh finish uh what i wanted to say um we have uh the, the unis are usually a lot of them are located in the middle of the city so um there are buildings that you wouldn't even know it's a uni um it's just a building in the middle of the city that hosts uh, uh, rooms and everything. Um, and there's another building maybe a mile away that's part of the uni as well. So it's not, oftentimes it's not a whole campus at one place, you know? Right, right. So, and, but and... I guess the academic, the academic world is, is like teaching and everything is the same everywhere, the kind of, scientific approach to whatever you're doing at uni of course but um well it's let's say the buildings and the whole infrastructure is kind of different i'd say right and tell us uh what city are you in then well i studied in in freiburg which is um a city that has a medieval center okay um and it's a uni city. It's actually a small city, about 250,000, uh, of which about 50,000 are uni students. Wow. And um, right now I'm living at the Swiss border, um, about two hours away, close to the Lake of Constance, um, next to Austria as well. So, so Austria, Switzerland, and Germany comes, comes together. Fabulous. You mind if I kick this one off? Not at all. I would, we were waiting for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am the Costa Rican in the group. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to welcome everybody to this very special Origins podcast. Uh, we have a special guest from a first world nation. <laughs> As opposed oh, thank to you. us folk over here pretending to be a first world nation. Um, good long life friend, uh, Matthias Zimmerlin, vice principal at a school in Germany that I will not try to pronounce the name at this point. I <laughs> uh, uh, met Matthias um, back on tour with last Tuesday, somewhere in 2003, maybe is my guess. Matthias probably knows a little bit mm-hmm. better. Actually, it was 2006. 2006. Okay. And so as has happened with things in which I've met people through music, we've ended up in education together from afar. Uh, We have not had a chance to really touch base on that, but we have been able to follow from afar what each other is doing. 
And as these podcasts have gained traction, it just became manifest that it was time to have a conversation. Um, I think it'll be a great morning together in which we get an idea for what's going on outside our bubble here, where we talk about things in uh, America. And uh, there's actually a whole other world going on and uh, sometimes very much of a similar nature and other times not so much. And that's what we'll discover as we move through this conversation. So a uh, warm welcome to you, Matthias Zimmerlin, and thank you so much for joining us here on yeah, The Origin thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure for me. And uh, uh, as I, I followed you through social media, uh, I knew you were doing things here and there, China, South America, and now back in the States, back in the motherland. Yeah. Um, at, least, <laughs> at, at least your motherland. And uh, I, always, uh, I always found that you had a, a wide view and uh, not only, you know, seeing your things, but... Um, being interested in other cultures. I remember um, the one or other thing back here when we were on tour. Um, I remember that you, your fellow bandmates wanted to get McDonald's somewhere in Bavaria. And um, <laughs> we took you, I guess you were the only one open for traditional food, uh, <laughs> some, kind, some kind of street food. So, but uh, I remember the others were absolutely not um, I'm used about not getting burgers. Um, they were a bit more American. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I really appreciate. I I would not have like that's not how I tell of my time in Germany, um, but it doesn't surprise me, and I really appreciate um, you know that that throwback memory, especially here in front of my good buddy and friend Ron. Um, who also has uh, international experience. Ron and I met in Costa Rica. Um, so if you don't know much about our backstory, uh, when I ended last Tuesday, I got on a plane the next day, flew down to Costa Rica and became a teacher. Uh, absolutely no training. Um, as most English teachers in uh, foreign countries, we just kind of pretend. And some of us <laughs> then go back to uh, our, our normal lives. Another of us plunged deep into a passion, and that was my case. And thankfully, I met Ron, who was kind of on a voyage of his own, just trying to get away from all of this. And the two of us developed a relationship that was based on really trying to get towards a, a best approach towards education and and for the most part, it fits really comfortable under the umbrella of regenerative and holistic learning. Um, so I've learned a hell of a lot from, from Ron. Um, and uh, so it's really nice for him to hear that actually before I met him, I actually did have some good attributes of my own, such as <laughs> McDonald's and wanting to eat some good local German food. So Thank you very much, Matthias. And that it was actually it was actually Turkish food, Turkish street food. <laughs> oh man, I uh, that all of it is so much of a uh, of a of a blur. But um, in in you were our driver, weren't you? Or the tour? Yeah, I was driving the van and uh, you know doing all the work that you didn't want to do, like carrying stuff. No, uh... just kidding. I was a driver. <laughs> yeah, were, you, were, you, were you part of that time when the police stopped us? I, I do remember that. 
I remember Steve almost shitting his pants. <laughs> I don't even remember that, but actually, did you do you know or do you remember that back in the time when we met 2000 and we actually met before, but you came back for the tour? Um, that at the time that we met, I was working for the police because after school, and we will talk about education in Germany and the education system. Um, I was a police officer. You remember that? Yes, I do now. So, and I took some some days off to to drive you around, and I think a year later, yeah, two thousand and seven, I I went to uni full time and quit my job, and now I'm here. Yeah, that that's actually a really really good place to get us going here a little bit, because um, it's kind of similar. You know, I was in music, went into education. So, can you frame that a little bit for us? Like, wait, was, wait, wait, was wait. it first? We got to talk about the elephant in the room etymologically. Um, and that's that Matthias, you said that these band members wanted to go out for hamburgers. And yet hamburger <laughs> is a German word. <laughs> and so that's not street food, but you see the irony here it, where it's it, like yeah. these guys are German, like, right. Part of what we try to do in Originative is, is keep one ear always open for the way that we have changed our perspective and forgotten the etymology of uh, and the story and the, the evolution and ancestry of different words. And so that's a really fascinating thing that the hamburger is this, you know, American thing. And yet it's completely derived from our German ancestry and lineage. And so we just want to take a moment to honor that and highlight the, <laughs> the, the, the irony. <laughs> so the irony, the irony is as well that we were on the total opposite side of Germany in Southern Bavaria. And, um, the hamburger, hamburgers in the north, um, <laughs> some shitty town in Bavaria. I remember that. And we were playing a show or you were playing a show. I forgot where it was, but absolutely. Oh, I think it was Hof. And Hof is like, like on the, on the border to the Czech Republic as well. And I remember that we wanted to take you to this Turkish kebab place. And um, Steve and the other guys wanted to go to McDonald's. <laughs> so we ended up we ended up taking you guys for kebabs at the Turkish place but I felt so bad that while you guys were doing the sound check I went to McDonald's and got you a handful of cheeseburgers and oh my gave God. you the cheeseburgers and I I remember the guys were really happy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, can we please move on? Yeah, I'm yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, right. we, we did we did our due diligence with the etymology let's carry on <laughs> well i do i do think i do understand carl that you were open for the food and everything i think the others they were paying respect to our hospitality and they ate what we gave them but just like we all do 10 15 20 years later we uh, reflect on things and uh i'm pretty sure that they when they think back they will uh think differently about it now you know yeah like they were yeah. we were all 20 22 25 right and now yeah. that we are in I, our I, early I, 40s 
see you, Matthias. You still you're still hanging in there. You're looking really sharp as all Germans should when they turn, you know, almost 40. Hey, uh, I want to I do want to hear more a lot uh, along the lines of you were a policeman. Uh, was education even a consideration? Were you moving in that direction already thought wise? Had you been thinking about it for a long time, but you became a policeman like what oh, oh, take back then in, 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 in your transition into education? Wait, can I can I interject? That I'm really interested in in your story here, Matthias, because about the same time that you were hanging out with Carl, uh, my family had a exchange student from Bamberg, um, from Bavaria. So there's this weird cloud of of um, coincidence happening, um, and the way that she described, she was a high school student, and she was. Um, taking a year in the States, uh, basically a vacation academically, because <laughs> from what I understand, things are a lot, you know, things are more difficult there. At least they were for her. Um, and she was going back to take her exams to then enter the university um, to go through the, the next or the next stage of gymnasium. Um, and, I, gymnasium. and so I'm not, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember all of, all of the details, but Eva described the process or the education system in Germany as being um, pretty closed as far as like once you're on a track, it's hard to change tracks and then go back, say, to the university later on. And so maybe I had that impression wrong. And when I when I was reading a little bit about you and that you had a, this career in public service and um criminal justice within the police that that you changed tracks and that surprised me i was like oh i didn't know that i thought that that was more difficult to do and so i'm excited to to hear your story about this uh, just from from what my impressions were so okay um well first of all the educational system in germany has become a little more um you say pervious like more more um you know what i mean yeah 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 it's easier to to switch from one to the other. Okay. okay? So um, when you say has become, can you just frame that in timelines um, like last 10 years, last 20 years? I'd say the last 10 to 15 years. Okay. Yeah. But so we basically have a, a, an a education system based on three pillars. Um, first of all, and it's not one of those pillars, is elementary school. Um, grade one to four, which um, gives a basic education, which teaches you how to write, how to do basic math at the age of six to 10. This is where my daughter is right now. And she's eight. And I'm actually vice principal at her school because we are a school um, that also has primary or elementary school. Okay. So, and then we come to the three pillars that lead you to what we would call a basic education, which would end after nine years, including elementary school. So you're about 16. We have uh, the immediate level school, um, which is taking 10 years. Um, so you're 16, 17. And then we have the Abitur, um, which you talked about, Ron, um, that leads you to a degree that will make you able to go to university. Uh-huh. So this is, these are the three pillars that we have. And um, let's 
um, go back to what you asked, Carl, how does, when was this transition made from, or when was it made more um, transparent, you know, easier to switch between the levels? Um, at least in my state where I live and at my kind of school that has all the levels that I just talked about in one school, there was an approach that we learned from the Scandinavian countries who only have uh, one school for all, okay? And it's called Gemeinschaftsschule. I'm teaching at a Gemeinschaftsschule, which basically means mm -hmm. that we have all the three pillars under one roof. Mm -hmm. And um, we are trying to to reach all the level levels of students that we have and to um, serve all the levels. And we also offer two of the three um, when you finish school, like um, graduate. The, the, well, yeah, yeah, decrease. Thank mm -hmm. you. We offer two of them. We offer the lowest one and the intermediate one, but we give. Um, the, the highest level of education would give them everything they need to continue the last years at a gymnasium, which is the school that uh, Ron, that your uh, the girl you talked about went mm -hmm. to. Okay, so which gives you a level of education so that you can go and get academic education at university or wherever. Okay, and for the other two degrees, they can lead up to an abitur, highest level of education but you will take some extra steps after that. They are more oriented into craftsmanship, you know, because mm -hmm. we have a, a very high level of um, uh, handcraft in Germany and mm -hmm. we have vocational schools as well. Do you, are you familiar with uh, vocational schools? Yeah, in the United States, the idea of vocation and trade schools i mean it sounds like what you're doing is separating those into two different categories and and in the united states i think they tend to just be lumped all into one okay well okay and, so and I, before you before you go on much further because i'm i'm kind of stuck in the south america like here we're, 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 there's three different societies talking about uh trade and vocation and so as soon as you mention that I think of uh, like Chile, where I grew up and went to school. If you went to vocational school, it was frowned upon. It was because you weren't good enough. Is that no. at all a stigma in in the States or in Germany? I'll just say the States really quickly. Um, I think that that used to be more true. And as the integrity of the academic system has uh, eroded mm -hmm. uh, over the last 15 years, let's say, um, due to the way that um, finances work and school loans work and let's get everyone a college education and to hell with trades and vocations. Um, it's created a vacuum or vacancies, a lot of vacancy within the trades. And so um, as far as your potential to earn a living in the United States, you're, you're better off now to go to a trade or vocational school because you're going you're much more likely to get a well-paying job uh, and people are realizing that and so it's part of the peeling away from academics and, and traditional or liberal arts universities that's happening and as a result universities are trying to figure out how they're going to make up that loss and the way that they've started to do it you know seven to ten years ago was to open more seats up to international students 
uh, because the, if if you have a government that's going to pay uh, or subsidize a tuition from an international perspective, they're charging those people a lot more money. And so they just started filling the, that yeah. financial gap that way. And then COVID really <laughs> interrupted that, that whole thing, right? It made it really difficult. But go ahead, Matthias. And how, how does that work there? Um, craftsmanship has always been very well respected in Europe and in Germany, especially. I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people have heard of technology from Germany. Everything's yeah. really nice, Porsche, Mercedes, BMW and everything. Um, but also, well, it's said that when we do something, we do it right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, vocational schools here do not mean that it's actually for someone who didn't make the, the university degree level, right? Mm-hmm. Some people just decide to do it. And just like Ron said, if you want to be financially stable, um, it's not a bad way to become, for example, for example, a carpenter, you know? If you, if you become a carpenter here, you look for a company to hire you, and then you take a three-year training. That means that you go to school for three years, uh, one day a week or maybe two, and the rest of the week you're working with them in the company, learning how to do things. And um, then you have exams in school. I just actually visited a school with my students last week. We took a group of students there who are about to finish our school and probably most of them will probably not go to university but you know start working in a job for example carpenters or car mechanic and uh, the school that we visited um, they offer courses and they offer um, well that one day a week you you go there you have to go there um, besides your job in a company mm-hmm. and uh, you should I mean, you should really see it the workshops they have it's if you're interested in stuff like that working with wood it's really nice to see because they have everything well you know and and you and the reason that i asked like i really wanted you to highlight i mean a lot of our listeners are stateside and 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 it's just the impression that i still have you know not just from visiting but interest in how people view the arts in different places it's evident, um, you know, from the German German culture. So it's just real nice to hear within this perspective that vocational is not low; it's it's highly esteemed. Um, and, more and, and more, yeah. So would you? That was actually my next question. Is, is it? Is that something that has manifested? Like Ron said, you know, as of late, you know, things are changing stateside um, due to the deterioration of the education, you know, system and uh, what about for you guys? Well, as I said, it has always been very much respected, but it actually has changed. I talked to the teachers at the vocational school and they said, like, for example, if you start working in a job after school at the age of 18, you you start working in a company, you start earning a little bit of money in the beginning because you work, so you get money for it, right? Even though you go to school one or two days a week. Um, and someone else goes to uni and, um, maybe starts a job by the age of 25, 26, he will hardly make, let's, well, money-wise, okay? Only money from the money side, he will hardly make more money just because of his college education than one of those who went to vocational school and burnt money from the beginning, you know? 
uh, from yeah. scratch. Yeah, right. So um, this is the financial side. And the other side is that, as I said, it has become more and even more respected than it was before. So if you're a good carpenter or car mechanic, you will always be able to be financially stable and make good money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you study philosophy, then um, you know, most probably to end up like uh, as a taxi taxi driver, probably. Yeah, it's just well, yeah. So I want to highlight the through my learning and, and about languages, I've um, come to understand some some different facets of the way things work, and 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 specifically, we we talk a lot about the way that the language that you speak creates your way of being. And it was described to me more eloquently than I can put it today. It, well, I had a, a good friend of mine that used to be a roommate um, when my wife and I were first married, uh, lived with us. And he um, was very brilliant. He played trumpet for my ska band. And then we moved in together and he ended up studying um, triple majoring in English or not English, uh, philosophy or psychology, uh, German and French. And so while he was studying, he was living with me and he would talk about the differences uh, between English and French and German. And and, uh, he had a passion to, when he visited France, uh, he didn't want to be recognized as a, as an American. So he would speak German and he, so he had this motivation to speak German at a really high level or with with yeah. a, with minimal accent so that he could pass for a german and then opposite when he went to germany he would, he would speak french so that he could get away from that stigma of being an american but one of the things that that he talked about uh with the german language is that he said the german language has so many more words that are dialed in and more, much more precise and he said that's why german engineering and german craftsmanship is so much more dialed in is that they actually have a language that creates a way of being and a way of thinking and a way of seeing the world that's very extremely microscopically nuanced. Wow. And so he's like, it's no mistake that we consider, um, you know, clocks from Germany as being <laughs> these extremely fine precision based instruments and cars and the engineering is operating at a much more uh, detailed level. And Matthias, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you might hear this and be like, no, nah, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but if that, does that make sense? I mean, is that something that is English being, I mean, English is derived from a Germanic language, but it's really not. I think it's oversimplifying English to say that it's a Germanic language because it's just a blob of yeah. eating other languages at this point. Um, and while we do have a core, uh, a Germanic core, um, we can be a lot more abstract like the romantic languages, like Latinate languages. Also, it's kind of like we can choose, we can be more lazy by not having to dial in. But if you speak German and you're able to get, you're, you're just, you're always at that core of, of words. Like what's the first word that comes to mind when you're like, this is a word that German has that English doesn't. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, probably. Well, it's not, linked to you know what you said about um the engineering everything but we have to you have to you okay so everything's a everyone's a you and we have a do and see which means um do is what i i am 
asking you or if I'm saying something to you like you are like you're stupid okay uh-huh. and it's it's saying German du bist dumm you're stupid and I'm saying du that means you know me okay we're close I can say du and uh, instead if I'm telling someone else like my boss that he's stupid I have to tell him sie sind dumm okay so um c is a lot more shows more respect okay so if i'm talking to someone who's higher than me i cannot say do but you in america and english you only have you okay so you know that that's not linked to what you said ron about um you know how we have a a language that is more what did you say well, actually, actually, it is, Matthias, because any time that you have a specification of something that, in, like in English, you're saying there's there's only one option, you. But in yeah, German, yeah. like you automatically go to this place. It reminds me a lot of the Spanish when I say tú or I say vos, right? I yes. have that, that. And depending on what country you are in, in South America, the vos has even become despective but there is a differentiation and my curiosity here is like where is the parallel between latin having those options and german having those options but then in english it didn't happen well it did those are actually latinate derivatives because of the close ancestry of italic and german so that is something that English has lost over the years, but oh, it did used thou. to exist. Thou? Um, yeah. You, you and thou, thy. Um, um, so when you, when you read Shakespeare, you, you get to see all of that that existed. So um, I, what I'm really talking about is a word like in, if we're talking about in Spanish, it'd be like, ojalá, or, um, or Matias, maybe you could describe this word that I've put in the chat, you could probably say it correctly. Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude? Yeah. <laughs> Where did you find that one? Um, I've heard this before. Um, this is one that is highlighted regularly as a word that doesn't exist in English, but it exists in, Ger- in German. And it's just one example of, of what I understand. That there's probably several. Um, yeah. Could you describe what this word means to us? <laughs> well, if um, <laughs> if someone's really rude to me, um, and I don't like this, well, let's say someone's really rude, and uh, something happens to him or her, and I'm I'm laughing and I'm happy about it, I feel Schadenfreude. Um, <laughs> that means, yeah, I'm happy that this guy um, or this girl, woman, whoever, got I don't know. What something just, happened to her like not like, what um, was coming car- to them yeah can you just say that again which one the word i want to hear you say that oh again. schaden schadenfreude oh my god okay okay uh, I, I don't know if this word counts i love what you've done uh, opened up here this box of curiosities <laughs> pun intended <laughs> uh, one of our other favorite words that you just don't find the same um in english and we use it actually um on a routine basis is the wonder crummer um, oh yeah wonder crummer and, and 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 this might be something i'll put it in the chat box there if maybe you're like what the heck um but so that you're unfamiliar with the wonder crummer 
Okay, so no. I'm going to introduce you to a few things about. Um, Wait, let me just let me let me highlight something. <laughs> we do not say this word correctly. We add an R for uh, between the K and the A because. <laughs> Oh, because <laughs> that's not how it's actually spelled, but it's how we always say it. We always say Wunderkrammer or Wunderklammer. Well, it's because I'm trying to cram all my curiosity. Right? No, that's what it is. If you look this word up and just get an image of it, you're like, holy shit. Like, what is this? What is? And you look at this mess of things, and but it's a concept that has been lost over over the last hundred years we love this idea we love i'm living in a yeah that is a really even though this is like a audio podcast we'll just uh dismiss all of our friends but matthias this is a wonder crummer okay yeah i i just uh, i actually had to look it up online and it's uh a curiosity room probably that (laughs) what you would get Look at Ron's yeah. wonder. <laughs> a room full of curiosities. Um, I've never heard that word. I have to look it up, though. Well, the point in in, in and and that's fine. I mean, it's actually it's actually good for us to know that that it's not that common. Um, it's not just like every German has a wunderkammer. <laughs> How could we have known? But us, it became like there's not a word in English, and and so there is this word that is very specific to what we're trying to say here um, in Germany. Can you just say that word too, so I can just delight? Wunderkammer. Oh gosh. <laughs> a wunderkammer. Yeah. So well, I actually a- looked it up online. I looked it up online and it shows me, Google shows me that there is a, a coffee shop um, about two hours away called Wunderkammer. And there's some some other shops and places you can visit called Wunderkammer. Yeah, so it's actually, some people use it in Germany, but I haven't heard of it at all. When you have coffee there, you make sure to send us a little picture. Yeah, okay. yeah, you got it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Hugo culture is another word we use probably more than Lunar are you Kama. familiar with Hugo culture? No. Okay, so can you write it in the chat? It's in there. Describe a little bit what that is. Um, because I don't think we even did that for Wonder Crummer. <laughs> like our listeners are probably like, What the heck what are you guys talking about? I've never seen that people. Hugo culture. Hugo culture. No. Never heard of it. We don't need to get into the weeds of Hugo culture in this podcast. We can move on. But but getting back to the idea of precision in language, that's how we have talked about that in terms of like Germanic roots and having not being a person that speaks German. Um, it's an impression that I have, and I don't know how real or unreal it is. It's uh, If there's some myth there or some sort of um, fallacy that I'm dealing with, uh, you can shed some light on it. Can you say that again? I just didn't get that. Well, is your impression of German and being a native speaker of German, uh, are we accurate in our understanding of that? I mean, do you feel like that lends itself to uh, the craftsmanship and the and the degree of craftsmanship that exists in Germany? Yeah, actually. Yeah, I'd say so. So you were asking if we were able to describe or you were able to describe in your language what craftsmanship here is 
or mean is that correct because it just didn't get that see that's yeah. where my english ends carl uh -huh. <laughs> yeah what what i'm saying is that the because of the lexicon um that embodies our being on our lifestyle and creates our lifestyle and, and suggests us to go this direction or that direction um if you don't have a word for something for example um the uh from what i understand like the word purple doesn't exist in it either does or doesn't exist in russian i have to, I have to look at that again but there's languages that don't have um like ancient greeks didn't use the word blue blue is only a recent sort of addition to the western lexicon and so now it's used it's used quite a bit but when you look historically it's not used in the same way or at all at some point and so as we introduce a new word into our composite lexicon we also are able to work on that idea and so if if german has it just in general has a more precise way to look at the physical world, it would make sense that the mentality of uh, the German ethos is able to manufacture at a much more refined level, right? And that, and vice versa, if you have a, a language that's very, really relies on context rather than precision, well, then everything's kind of like, gets close, but not really necessarily precise. Wow. And so you, it isn't that you can't build a house. You can use the house using any language, but your house is going to look different depending on the type of sure. language that you're using, right? Yeah, right. On the, uh, well, if you look at our at our history as well, and and at the American history, not well, in history of American, not of the English language, then you will see um, that there has been some kind of development, you know, which. Uh, has taken a lot more time for us than it has for Americans when we're talking about America. Now we're going back to back from language to the education system, right? And to education in America and um, to maybe the kind of schools that we have and the way we teach and the way we look at um, jobs, right? Now we always had the system of vocational schools and you just told me that in America, it has become more and more popular um, to introduce vocational schools and the way of learning and teaching there, right? Yeah, I would say that pre-World War II, very few people went to uh, a liberal arts or ac academic university. But with the prosperity that happened post-World War II, it pushed more and more people to uh, want to advance into academic degrees because you could secure a white collar job that way, right? That was the right. way to access higher echelons of our social system. And now it's oversaturated. So there's now a vacancy. And so people are moving back to saying, okay, well, it's actually good to have electricians and plumbers and carpenters in our society and, and people who know how to work on cars. Right. So um, and now I wanted to talk about the three pillars of education because you call us how I got from being a police officer into um, education. Right. Yeah. And um, 
well, you need to know about the three pillars first, because then you will understand that why I went the way that I, you know, I walked the path that I walked, you know, uh-huh. because when you, because when you um, finish a, an intermediate degree, you're not able to go to uni, right? You basically, I'd say 50% move on to another school and finish a degree that leads you to uni and the other half goes into jobs and what I did, I, I finished high school at about 17 and I went to police academy because I come from a family background that has no university degrees. You know, I come from farming. My parents do farming and I guess you would call it blue collar jobs, right? Yeah. Not acad- yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's not a- academic jobs. Right. Those terms are, I think, are starting to break up a little bit. But yes, it's, you know historically they, that's, that's, that's interesting because they do break up here as well and um so what i did is i just um i just wanted to work make money you know and um started finishing my police academy and worked and but what i did is i went to a, a so-called evening school so i finished my uh-huh. abitur which is the highest degree um of education before university on weekends, you know, and in the evenings. And then I decided that I wanted to move onward and do a little more of education. And I knew a lot of teachers. And um, well, I lived in Freiburg in the uni city of Freiburg and I saw the students having a lot of fun there. And I was the one working shifts, you know? So uh, Uh I thought about (laughs) going back to uni, having a little bit of fun and that's what I did. And uh, now I'm here and I'm, I'm fine, you know, I'm all good. So yeah. I love this three pillar uh, conversation because Ron and I have often talked about the dangerous mistake of finishing high school and going straight to the university. Um, mm-hmm. that, you, you know, you're really at the prime of not knowing what the fuck you want out of life. And you're burdened by the societal pressures, family pressures to find your career pathway, I guess, your profession, your degree. You have to make these big decisions at a time where you don't know anything about anything. You're just, you know, you're, you're moving. We call it the death belt. You know, like when you're in the airport and you start walking and you go this direction, it's like you can't get off and walk and maybe you want to stop and get a Coke or, you know, go to the bathroom. But if you get on that death belt, you're just going, you have no option. You got to stay on there. And what I'm hearing from you is that like after, I guess, pillar two, and correct me if I'm wrong, which was around 16, you made a choice to not go in that 50% direction, which would have been pillar three. You went into the police academy, and it sounds like the whole system in Germany has these this openness where if only fifty percent are going that direction, um, the other fifty percent are, are not going into a, an unsuccessful life. They're going into options, and not only options that make them fixed into not being able to go to the university, but in your case, you went in that direction, and then you were able to go back on track and go into the university and, and end up end up as an educator and it and it just sounds incredibly healthy but is it really like ultimately i i really want to get at what is germany doing well and and what is germany doing not so well from your perspective um you know in terms of this system that is in place well 
it is possible, you know, as you said, to switch from one one pillar to the other. But just like in my case, it was a lot more difficult, you know. And um, it's funny that you're talking about that because actually I am at a school that has all the three pillars on the one roof. And we don't separate mm -hmm. them into different classes. We have uh, weak students. We have strong students. And we have all the students in between teaching them in one classroom, but on three different levels, or, I mean, you're educators as well. There are more levels than three, right? Right. So um, what is Germany doing well? As I said, there is actually, the idea of having three pillars is actually not bad because as you said, you need carpenters, you need plumbers, electricians, and those will probably not have the drive to go to university. So we give them an education that leads them into, well, supports, all the needs they need to have for what they uh, do with their hands, right? And um, in my school, we give them the option to make a decision later than in grade five when they come from elementary school to one of the three pillar schools, right? So they can move on to our school and work on their level for grade five and six. And then they don't have to decide on which level they want to work, you know, the, the lowest one, the intermediate one, or the highest one, um, until they want to get an exam in grade nine for the first one or grade 10. So they have a lot more time to decide um, which degree they want to get. Mm. So we have all of the, and I understand that in, in America, you have high schools, right? Right. Everyone goes to high school, right? Yeah. Are you, are you allowed to finish your school career after middle school? Is that correct? Is that right? Is that allowed? No, it is frowned upon. Okay. It would okay. only be in the case of somebody that's dropping out and not choosing, you know, like it, it would be societally a big mistake, right? Um, which sounds very, I mean, it's possible, <laughs> but you wouldn't want to do yeah, it. Yeah, it's possible. And they have, um, you, you have, there is a general exam that you can take. It's called a GED or a general education diploma. So it's an alternative to a high school diploma that is not seen as uh, robust. Okay. Okay. So um, if, if you're a student in an American high school who just doesn't, you know, is not able to, to, to finish a degree in high school, uh, what do you do? Like, you is that, drop is out. high school, you trip out and have no, no degree. And then you get a GED. Okay. So you take a, a very basic test that just okay. says, okay, you know, you know, the general knowledge and, and it's a, it's a way for people that don't fit into the system or for whatever reason, it just didn't work for them. I'm making it sound like it's more empathetic than it really is. It's a, yeah. no, it's, and, it's and not actually, the way that I was thinking of it is that the GD, right. Which it, it could almost have what I really want to hear you describe Matthias, but really the GD surfaces as like you have a roof that is leaking and it's raining. And so let's throw a little bucket and try to fix it all so that maybe you can have some sort of life. It's a really bad option. If a kid yeah, yeah. drops 
drops out and then maybe two or three years later wants to kind of begin to catch up with the system, at least there's a way that they can do that without having to go back to high school, but very much frowned upon. What is happening? What are you getting at? What does all of that look like in Germany if a kid that's high school, quote unquote, isn't really working out? It sounds like you guys have really healthy alternatives. Well, the thing is, we don't have a high school like you do. We have a Three different schools. If you're not good enough for gymnasium, the highest school or the most, uh, now, you know, see my English is not, I'm an English teacher, but I have to look up some words, okay? The gymnasium is the school that gives you the highest level of education, you know? And if you're not able to do that, you go to the Realschule, which gives you the intermediate level. And if you're not good enough for that, you go to the Hauptschule, which gives you a general level of education, okay? And most mm. of us should be able, most of the kids should be able to finish Hauptschule at the lowest level of school that we have that leads to a degree so you can start a job, right? And um, then, of course, we have some kids who are not able to get the degree there because they are um, have some, some handicaps, you know, or they are just not willing to do so. Mm. Oftentimes, people from poor family backgrounds, you know, Sure. Well, then we offer, we try to support them in whatever they're capable of. And then that's where we're talking about vocational schools. Because if you start um, doing a job, you go to vocational schools, but vocational schools also offer courses for people who were not able to finish um, a normal or to get a normal degree. Okay, so they offer courses, they don't offer degrees, but you know, you can go into different directions, electricians, working with wood, working with metal, and um, which then leads you to be able to start working in companies and making your own money, making a living, you know. Uh So I had a thing happening at my school, and there was a guy and he was And he was saying, he was from a vocational school and he said, there's something for everybody, you know? If you leave high school without a degree, there's another school that will take you and will teach you whatever you're interested in, you know? If you're willing to, right? If you're willing to work and you're interested in, you know, um, okay, wood again, if you're willing to work with wood interested, you can get training there and then, start working in a job like a carpenter's, right? So the way that you've described that, these three different schools, are, is there a social um, stigma against kids that aren't able to achieve a certain level? Like, like the kids yeah. that go to gymnasium, do they enjoy a higher social status because they achieved yeah. a higher academic level? Well, sadly, yes, it is so. Um, every parent tries to get his kid into a <laughs> gymnasium, right? of course. Um, and actually, in elementary school, you get a letter from the school, from the class teacher, uh, which is giving a recommendation on where to go, which school. But the fun thing is that parents don't have to follow the recommendation. It's only a recommendation. Uh-huh. So... Um, a lot of people send their kids to the gymnasium, even though they have a recommendation for the immediate or the lower level education. And then in grade six or seven, 
they usually come back because in grade six or seven, there's a lot of things to do at the gymnasium. There's a lot of work. And usually around that time, they come back and parents ask for a place at the other school, uh, sadly. And as you said, Ron, there is actually a stigma against uh, people who finish the lower level, the Hauptschule. Um, but as you said as well, it's beginning to break up, I guess. Um, because there's a lot of respect for craftsmanship here in Europe. And um, people make a lot of money with it, you know? Right. They respect the people. If you know your shit, your shit you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Then, um, then you're respected and you can make a lot of money. I know a lot of people who make more money than I do and I have an academic degree. And I'm actually, I'm a vice principal. And uh, I have friends who, who work in construction and they're really good. They make a lot more money than I do. Right. So at least money-wise, you know. But as you said, there's still a stigma on people who, you know, come home dirty, meaning that um, people think there's not a high level of education and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see those tides changing um, in cyclical ways worldwide. And we'll continue to see that and we'll see it in our kids and then our kids will see other things that we can't even imagine. Um, so when, when we were getting ready for this podcast last week, um, you mentioned you were going to the Literaturkreis. Can you say that word? Literaturkreis. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, Literaturkreis means, well, literature, of course, and Kreis means circle. So basically... Originally, it would mean that we, you would meet and talk about um, literature, right? So uh -huh. maybe talk about a specific book and stuff. So I was actually going there, but Literaturkreis is a word that we use for the teachers at my school. Some of us used to meet and have a couple of drinks and talk about, well, we usually bring a book actually, you know, and talk about it. But it's basically, it's more uh, just having a chat and socializing. It's a book club. But of course, it's only, yeah, 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 you could call it book club. But basically, it's a, a couple of teachers. And of course, we talk education a lot. But um, but I, I think it's important to frame, I mean, how reading is taking place. Um, you know, Ron and I have discussed a lot in terms of like these numbers that are thrown out in terms of literacy levels in a country. Are you familiar with the word illiteracy? So... I'll put it here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, talking about words that don't exist, like in other languages, this is one that in Spanish um, is just beginning to manifest, but because people are like kind of saying, okay, let, let's talk about that. But when we first started talking about a literacy 10 years ago in Costa Rica, um, it was hard for me. I had to talk about what it meant when I was having that conversation in Spanish. It was not possible um, because basically there was illiteracy being mm -hmm. those can't read. And then there is literacy, those who have the ability to read. And then there's become the, a need for representing the people that have the ability, have learned to read and yet choose not to read. Right. And, and, and that's widespread in a pandemic form. And I, I would say that a fourth word is needed, where is in a lot of crap shit is being read. 
our bookstores are just full of shit. And so yeah. if reading's happening, it's not great. Um, and, 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 and right now, as you're talking about meeting at a bar to discuss, you know, education, um, I think it's phenomenal. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a teacher meeting that for educators that wanted to continue a conversation about education outside of the classroom. And so they would meet at a bar. They called the, they called the group Banakava. The teachers that got together to have these discussions were people that were actually passionate about education, but didn't feel like they had um, a space or time within the, the workday to continue to evolve their craft of being an educator. And so they would gather at a bar and we'd have drinks and we'd all sort of discuss, evolve a discussion uh, every month concerning what's going on at, at that time. Like, like, what do I need as, a, as an educator? What are my thoughts? What are my concerns? Is there a way that, uh, that another educator could help support that? So it wasn't, it, while it didn't necessarily always revolve around one particular book, people certainly suggested reading material that that they were interacting with and so it was kind of like an exchange of ideas and so it happens but it happens with a very small number of people who like i said continue to have this drive this internal drive to get better at what they do and solve some of the challenges that they're experiencing within their within their work life and it's great that it happens at a bar. Um, that's an atmosphere that's more conducive to a lot of conversation and a different type of conversation than can happen in a uh, teacher's lounge or in a faculty meeting, right? You're not going to breach some of those subjects. And so pockets of that exist sometimes, but they don't typically sustain themselves, right? They might exist for a year or, or a couple of years, but as teachers shift and move around. I mean, and choose different careers as the economy, you know, drops out and there's more people enter the education field because they can. Then there's this new pool of intellect there and there's this new exchange. But then as the economy gets great and everyone leaves education to go to go back into the tech sector or go back into uh, some other white collar job, uh, that they can make more money at, then there's this vacancy. And then you're like, well, where where is everybody? And so we have this problem right now of a lack of quality educators, partly because people don't need to go back into education yet. There isn't enough of a stress on people accelerating into higher echelons of, of pay. They're not willing to take that pay cut to be involved in education. Well, there's a lot of people that could be teaching. Um, they don't choose to. Uh, so we we have a we have a big vacancy. Is that? I mean, Carl, you're an example of like you could choose to go into education um, if you wanted, but what makes it so that you don't choose to go into education? Yeah, I mean, I can speak towards that. Like, you know, it'd be really interesting to see what what it would look like for me. Um, and I kind of have an idea just because of the language nuance if I were to go to Germany. But, you know, um, and and this might be an, an impression. So you can you can speak toward, towards it as well, Ron. But like, 
Um, what keeps me from getting back into education here is number one, um, I'm not valued for what I can do and what I know. <laughs> uh, I can't I can't just walk into the classroom and get a pay that is competitive. Um, not competitive, like that matches my experience. I, I just can't. Um, I, I have to really advocate or go through all of these other things to prove myself or not even to prove myself, just to be, to have access into that. Um, number one, and that, that could be done, right? But then there's number two. Number two is even with all of that, then I'm stuck with going into a classroom within which I would feel all of the constraints that I systematically broke free from as I look back over 10 years of meeting in a classroom with you in Costa Rica. And then we quit that job and opened up our own school and then, you know, went to China and developed a whole early childhood education based on, you know, theory and practice that we had accumulated and had all of the freedom and all of the budget to do that. Well, <laughs> it's a really volatile mix to then take all of that. I can only imagine the frustration of walking into a public school system and being the kindergarten. And at, at 40, I don't have the stamina enough to be like, okay, I'm going to slowly begin to change this system and move it in the right direction. Because I, 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 I know that I had that when I was younger and, and I was willing to advocate and go for all these things. And like, there's just so much that does not feel appealing to me or even possible in many ways um, in terms of what the system of education in the states in Belgrade, Maine, you know, has for me. That's kind of like the question, would would that be the case, Matthias? I mean, I know like in some countries there's the whole American sort of thing. And like, you know, just because I speak English with, you know, an American accent, you know, like boom, you you get streamlined and then you get like better pay than and and, and you're welcome just for that. I experienced that in China. And I kind of hate that <laughs> because I'm more you know, and when I when I went to Costa Rica, I went because I spoke English and I look like a rock star. Okay, boom, you get a job. The irony of all of this is I went through all of the training and practice and, and could and can prove my craft to anyone. And yet, how do I get a job? So I take calls for old people that don't know how to find a doctor in Alabama. Right. Well, let's just <laughs> so let let's frame that really concisely is that Carl doesn't feel valued, right? So even though Carl is a master educator, because he got his education in a different form than, than what the system identifies as the way you yeah. get your, your education, there's no way for the system to qualify that he's qualified, <laughs> right? And then secondly, why would he want to be there anyway? Like when you look at what's happening, um, you're like, well, I, the the things that he's learned to be, you know, as a master educator, he couldn't actually do within the system because the system wouldn't allow him to do that education. And in the United States, the, the way that that's dismissed so easily is that we can just say, oh, he's like a snob, right? He thinks he's too good for the system. And, the, and we would just dismiss all really, really fantastic educators 
so easily who are saying, no, I would rather do such and such job that's not really my passion or my craft because the tax on my soul and my my passion for my craft is so severe within my occupational field that I refuse to deal with it. Um, and I wonder how does that happen in Germany? Is that common? How do how in in your book club are those things that are that are talked about discussed? I, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let's say um, the appreciation we teachers get for doing our job. I'm not sure if it's the same in the U.S., but here, again, money. Money-wise, financially, it's fine, right? Uh, we're well-paid, everything's good. You can make a living by being a teacher. So the appreciation financially is all fine. And this is what people say about teachers. This is saying in Germany, they say, um, you have morgens recht und mittags frei. That means that we're, we are right in the mornings because what teachers say is always right. And we're free in the afternoons because there's no school in the afternoon. <laughs> that's what they that's what they say about us, which is actually not true because my school is eight to four every day. All right. So and and then yeah. Um then there is the appreciation of people who are able to teach and who are who know their shit in a specific field. Like I have a teacher, she is from She's a diplomat's wife. She's married to a German diplomat, but she's originally from the Caribbean. And she has degrees from all over the world. And she's a good teacher, but she gets paid less because she doesn't have the formal education that you need to have if you want to become yeah. a teacher like I am. Okay. So um, she's welcomed, but she's not appreciated financially like we are but she's doing the same mm -hmm. job, right? Mm -hmm. So Carl, right. That's, mm -hmm. one, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that, as you said, if, you wanna, if you're not familiar, if you're not okay with the educational system at the place where you live or where you work, then you're open or free to move on to, uh, for example, private school, but they're also tied to the rules that we have for schools because basically they're all the same, but let's say a private school is a little bit more free to do whatever they want, you know, but only a little bit. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for a change concept of performance, you know, mm. what is the outcome of your education? What is the, what are the competences that your students will reach or accomplish when you teach them? Right. Then I would say we're moving towards, um, actually moving towards, oh, in the right direction, okay? Because we're, the, the change concept of performance is a big topic in um, school development in my state. So I know that you, call you were, well, from the pictures and the things that I saw what you did, you were not traditionally, not only traditionally teaching, but you were doing things outside with your hands, and stuff like that. So what is the outcome of our education? And what is the need of the students who will live in the future, right? 
is it a perfect English or is it American English? Is it for my students, for my English students, is it for them to speak American English or is it for them just to be able to communicate and to navigate through the world, you know, maybe with a little bit more towards uh, cultural competences, you know? Not a perfect mm. English, but being able to speak English in, in Asia, you know, knowing mm -hmm. that Asians probably mm. don't speak as much English as we do, right? Or not as right. good as we do. Right. And um, so we're actually discussing things like that, the change concept of performance. Can you tell us a little bit more about general second language acquisition uh, programming system in Germany? I mean, the, I'll frame it like this. Uh, stateside, for some reason, we just don't get it, right? We just don't get it. Like right now, my, my kid went into sixth grade, and it's the first time his peers will receive um, a second language class. So they're all starting to learn Spanish <laughs> when, when the brain is no longer like at its best state to begin to do that. Right. It's interesting because stateside, like they understand really well that kids, um, that want to develop muscle, you know, and become, I don't know, like a lineman in football, uh, should probably not be going to the gym and working out, um, at 11 years old, like they, they need to wait and, and they're not allowed to do that until they're, it's the time to do that. Right. Like we actually think about that in, in, in somewhat correct forms, but when it comes to the language acquisition, it's absolutely asinine the way that the system is rather than just have a bunch of kids in a kindergarten where the mornings in English and in the afternoons in Spanish or German or whatever you want, let's do it then when their brain is ready. Um, preschool, right? Um, Pre-kindergarten, like that should be the first thing that happens when kids go into the classroom. They should be like, that's what I would love. I'd love to be at a kindergarten where kids just come, you know, and like, and I could do it, open up my own little Spanish kindergarten here, but my God, like I'm 40 years old and I have two kids right now. It's really hard to start off a project like that. Anyway, without getting sidetracked, in Germany, when you're talking about English and the proficiency level that you want students to have to go out into the world and be able to speak English to some Chinese businessmen, um, where is it starting? Is it starting in early childhood education or are you guys starting late? What's, what's happening well and what's not, um, according to you, a very fluent bilingual English and vice principal of a school? Well, as you said, or oh, you said earlier that um, we want them to speak English to a Chinese businessman. That, that's that's actually not what we want, you know, or that's basically not what the kids need. Um, they might need it, but um, not all of them will. And what we do is that we all teach English, right? Um, everyone needs to learn English because it's the world language. That's basically why you Americans don't speak many languages, because everyone speaks English. Why should you learn another language, right? You do, but probably you're not too desperate to do so, right? Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> no, that's, that that's, okay. that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you just summed up the, <laughs> the, the entire picture. Okay. So what we do is we start, I have a son in kindergarten and they learn English, but I'd say child-friendly. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, could be. so yeah. that means they they sing songs, easy songs in English. They start counting, counting, you know, 
by using songs and their fingers. Uh, my kids understand a lot in English because I'm an English teacher and they keep asking me, what's this and that in English? So in kindergarten, they, which is a German word, by the way, uh, kindergarten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm glad we, I'm glad we pointed that out. <laughs> <laughs> they, they start learning English child-friendly, then move on to elementary school where they will have English classes, but it will still be child-friendly. So they will not um, sit there and learn vocabulary words, you know? They will sing songs and, um, you know, cut out things and glue them onto a piece of paper, you know, things for school, pens, scissors, uh, pencil, and so on. And then when moving on to secondary school, to one of the, the as I said, three pillars, um, in the secondary schools, they will have a common English class like like you could probably imagine from having a, a Spanish or German class in, in an American high school. And this is where we come to call, that's what you said, as a teacher, you have to come into a classroom and teach them specific things that um, your uh, curriculum wants you to teach them, right? And then it's mm -hmm. up to you how to do so okay because it all leads to a degree to an exam that you have to write which is all the same for the whole state right. so there are competences mm -hmm. that you have to reach at the end of grade 9 or 10 or 13 depending on the school you go and the way you reach it the way you go there Carl it's actually up to you up to the teacher right how to reach mm -hmm. this level of education this level of literacy this level of um competences that you need to finish the degree for me gotcha. it was i was a bad english student because i come from a background where no one understood english so no one could help studying yeah. english so basically right. the way i learned english is um in grade 10 my parents or my school was doing a trip to the states a four-week trip. So I was able to, my parents paid for the trip and I was able to go to Nevada and spend four weeks in a family. And oh, I mean, wow. you're all familiar with how we learn, right? How kids learn, how brains work and stuff. So I was able to, I, I had to speak English for four weeks. So I got home and I was a, uh, a straight A student in English. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's great. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. I mean, not, not all exchange programs. I'm I'm a real skeptic actually of of these exchange programs, especially you know like you mentioned four weeks. But I love hearing that it was successful yeah. for you, especially your farming parents. The amount of money they put towards that and that, and and but it must have had to do a little bit with you as well. Like you had a choice. You you made it successful. Actually, it's funny you say that because there's another story behind that. I was adopted when I was two days old, okay? So now mm -hmm. we're going into, do you say genealogy, biology and yeah. stuff? Yeah. yeah. Because I was, a, I was adopted when I was two days old. So I was always interested in where I come from. And um, since I came into one of, a, like, in, into a working class family, I never really thought about that until I was 22, 23, and I decided to move back into uni, go back to school. 
mm-hmm. and get some more education. Mm-hmm. And uh, about five years from today, I found out about my real parents and stuff. And I found out they're both educated and, or not both. I only know about one, but my mother, she has different uni degrees. She's actually from France. And um, so I started thinking about the meaning of where you come from and what your origins are in terms of genealogy, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And what it means for the way you see things, your interests. Yeah. So that might be a reason why I changed into the academic, well, parts of the academic world from being from a working class family. I'm not sure about it. And I'm still, you know, it's still in my mind now and then, but um, I'm pretty sure that that's a part of it, you know? Wow. Way to like tie it into everything that this whole thing stands for, Um, especially with, you know, like many of us, like the genealogy and the, therefore the origins is, more accessible because you know we weren't adopted at day two um but but we don't choose to even think about that or consider it and here you are like trying to make sense of like who you've become based on where you came from and you're doing the work to find that origin it's fascinating and i i'd like to push a little bit further and say that question at where can it be more than just a passing curiosity? Like, is there room in, in Germany or for a fourth pillar called um, the, you know, to, to use, to bring in like Rudolf Steiner and say this, the science of spirit, right? Like uh, where is the place that that's, discussed and nurtured and those 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 questions are explored um because we typically at least in the united states we don't we don't really have a track we don't have any place in education for for that question there's no there's just Mm -hmm. it it doesn't exist right Mm -hmm. for what question what what is the the link between our ancestral origins and what our personal ethos is and uh and phenomenology and experiential uh, evolution is in our lives right i notice a difference between i have have two two boys and i noticed a difference early on in what they were interested in and how they moved through the world in part based on who i was and who my wife was at the time of their conception and so that's really interesting, mm. but we don't have a place to talk about that. We don't have a science that <laughs> right. wants to explore that. Um, there's certainly no money for it. So it would have to be like this, just, you know, th- it would have to be this grassroots zeitgeist to use a, a German word that doesn't exist in English, right? <laughs> that would push and manifest that pillar, that paradigm as a, as a normalized part of what we would call general education, where we're just like, it's normal to talk about this, right? Why wouldn't we? 
talk about that. Yeah. And 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 so before we leave today, I think it it's it's fitting to bring in a Rilke poem because Rilke talked about that. I mean, Rilke pushed that into his poetry. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll we'll talk about that. But origins is a huge part of the concept of of originative. It's it's in our name, right? Originate Eve, and we encourage all of the mentors and all of the interns that pass through us and all the all the the students that we're working with to explore that, not because it's in some academic curriculum, but because it's important to to being human and to understanding what where we are at in the world and in time and our place in history, and then how we take our next step. But ain't that I would say isn't that part of general education? At least that's what we understand, what what in, in our understanding at my school and with my fellow colleagues and in the book club, let's say it's called, it's actually not a book club. Okay. So don't believe yeah, we're yeah, discussing yeah. books all night. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but um, it's what, but that's what, you, that's what you tell the wife. We're going, to, we're going to discuss books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the book club. It's the book pub. Right. Probably. Yeah. So, but it's a, this is a thing that we discussed that is how do we get the kids to, or the students to perform well and to to find out who they are. I mean, it's not only about teaching English and math, right? It's about, right. it's a um, ganzheitlich, wait, let me look, look up the word. It's a general education, wow. right? A general education that we are looking for, which also, um, a part of it is also to, um, can you hear my kids? Yeah, but that's back? great. Yeah, we love it. Fine. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Don't be. A part of it is, <laughs> part of it is also to to make the kids find out who they are and where they want to go. You know, um, and well, where, we, now, where, where does now, that exist in the curriculum, uh, though? So okay. I, I am, I've been really interested in this in the sense that if we don't test something like like the 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 things that a curriculum is typically built out is like you said before it's like this is what's you're going to be tested on and so the curriculum is going to consist of all the things that you need to cover so that you can successfully pass that exam but if you don't assess these ideas if say like social and emotional learning which the education system in the western world at least is really starting to embrace that's great it's great to embrace it but if you don't have a way to assess that, then it doesn't matter whether a teacher teaches it or not, right? True. Hmm. It's great that people ask these questions privately or in their siloed or in their at the book pub. Book pub. Uh, but if you don't have a place in the system where the system says, well, how well did we do contributing towards this student becoming what they're supposed to be? Like where, where we assess ourselves as educators and the system says, how do we test this within the system? Where is the place where they reflect back and say, yes, I have become who I was meant to be. And, and the system really helped me in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way, rather than it just being a private conversation on the side for, with great and fantastic educators. Yeah, it's uh, it's it is a thing that you cannot measure right like like math or english i measure in a test but um like what is the outcome of social learning of 
like for example, we do we do a thing called class council. That means the group comes together and discusses things. We do we have democratic structures in school. We give kids the opportunity to become a part of the school management, the right? They make sure, decisions right. for the schools. Right. So we have democratic structures. It's basically in the school law that we have for our state. We, ha we need to have democratic structures. Um, we have coaching. That means we take some of our time um, and instead of teaching in the classroom, we take kids out and we talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. We talk to their parents. We talk in groups and we, we evaluate what they do in school and how they do it, why they got into trouble. And um, we take time for that. So coaching is a big part of what we do every day. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. How often do you, Matthias, stay in contact with students as they've moved past their career, their yeah. educational career with you? How, how often is that relationship considered where you, you realize that this is actually a lifelong relationship, not just a, I was your coach at this particular time in, in school. Well, now I'm at, at an age where I sometimes meet students who were my students in my beginnings, like 10 years ago, and now they come back from uni. Uh -huh. Okay. Or I meet them picking up their little brothers or sisters from school. Uh -huh. And um, that's what I wanted to say. It's hard to measure the outcome of social learning um, or it's not, it's not possible to do like I measure math or English in a test. But when I meet them like 10 years later, you can't measure, but you can tell, right? Um, when people come back who were really weak students, you know, they had troubles socially and also academically or, or um, in terms of everything then they had to learn in school and then they come back and they're actually they're happy you know i'm not asking about their job oh i do but what i'm talking about here is i meet them and i find out if they're happy or not you know right and um yesterday i saw this brother of one of my students and uh, i don't actually know him but my boss told me he was a student at our school before and now he's actually a He's a driver for a logistics company, okay? So which is, it's a job, you know? But it's not a um, high level job. He's a driver, okay? He drives mail. But he was happy. He came back and he brought gifts for my boss who used to be his teacher. And <laughs> I just you, could just, you could just tell that, that he was happy, you know? And he was one of the worst students you can imagine. Not only, not only in terms of math and English, but overall, you know, he was a bad guy. And he, <laughs> like 10 years later, he came back to pick up, pick up his little brother and he brought gifts for my boss. And uh, he came in to say hi and gave him the gifts. And he was happy, you know. That's how we measure the results in, in, in those terms, you know, if they're happy right. or not. And Wow. It's not actually, it's not possible to stay in touch with all of them. I mean, obviously, but a lot of kids come back and when they come back, usually it means um, they've got something to say, you know, yeah. they're coming back for a reason, you yeah. know, you're not coming back to school yeah. um, if you don't want to, you know? Right. I think that's my point. Um, 
if we have a whole field, uh, if we have a market for something like psychiatry and the process mm. of psychiatry is, you know, uh, you have a therapist and then you have a person that comes in and sits down and then talks through all of the things that you have this, this exploration, this happen that happens and this inquiry and we, as a society, we say, whatever that conversation is, is relevant data. That's relevant. That's so that's fine. So we have a market that says that's qualifiably relevant data to uh, make an assessment based on, but our system then says, Oh, but that's too hard to man. It's too hard to measure that. So it's measured on a private level. It's measured on an, on an ad hoc level. Like when it happens, it happens. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't happen, who knows what happens. Right. But so this to, for the system to say, oh, it's just too hard to measure that is actually just laziness, right? Because you can go get a degree in psychology and make a, and make a career off of it, right? You can make a career as, as a therapist where you're taking that data and it's part of your job to then make assessments and make recommendations and progress in, in, in this field. But then on the other side, on this other social side of social science of education, we're like, oh no, that's too much. That's, that's, you know, when it happens is we're, we're delighted, but you know, you can't really measure that. And it's like, well, you can't, we just don't, we don't on a, on a mm. systems level. And what I'm saying mm. is we should, that would be one way to across the board, improve all education that we serve because it's taking the time to collect the relevant data in what we're doing. Of course, it's long-term. It's better if it's long-term. And for you to say that people are coming back and you have this student that struggled and now they're happy, that's success. And we would want to be able to file that away and say, this is evidence that we were doing something right. And maybe a reason to continue to do what we were doing. How beautiful you can make these things accessible. Like how, how beautiful to have... Um, you know, this stipulation that, I don't know, every three years you need to come back for an hour uh, to meet the educators of the past, you know, like teachers thrive, like we were talking about alternative currencies, um, you know, in, in a previous uh, podcast, but we know that what Matias just described, the joy, the pride that he felt um, as vice principal when this, when this student that was difficult returned, that was more than any paycheck. Right. And what if the system required that, you know, like to where, Hey, pay tribute, like uh, pay tribute to your educators. You know, it, it does, um, you know, and, and, and some people kind of get it and they do that, but it's not streamlined. And it's just a choice as a society that we, we don't have that requirement upon anybody. There's certain things that we decide are required. You, you, you will take this exam in math before you go to this level, but there's other things that we just choose. And, and it just takes a little bit of creativity. Um, and then a lot of discipline, um, to insert it into a faulty kind of like, you know, loosey goosey system. Yeah. I had this one, uh, student and, um, he was a former student of mine and around Christmas, shortly before Christmas, he came to my school and he asked, um, the secretary, 
um, where I am. And I was actually teaching English at the time. And he was walking into my classroom to hand me a bag of homemade Christmas cookies. And um, mm. I was teaching English like I was teaching him English a couple of years ago. And he said, and I asked him if he wanted to say something to the kids. And he said, um, well, he said something like, I'm in the working field now. And it's a lot of work, a lot of stress to make a living out of it. And I wish I would have paid more attention to English in my English class with Mr. Tsimali. And the whole year, the rest of the school year, um, we talked about that. And it, it came up again and again. Wow. wow. That's wonderful. That's great, man. And he came back to bring a bag of Christmas cookies, you know. Actually, that's the only reason. That's the only reason he came by, actually. And uh, that's really nice. Would you say would you say those two examples that I mean it's it's impossible to to generalize all of this, but just entertain the the idea. Like, are are these values um brought are are they are you talking these two examples that you brought is it is it german value are they family values are they your school in in uh, inflicted values is it public education like where where are the ethics coming from um when they manifest the way that we would want um well this because you know yeah go ahead i'd say um so it's everyone every teacher's personal value that you blend into your students right mm -hmm. and i can be i can be a, a, a very academic teacher so a lot of focus on theory and a lot of focus on um theoretical output but i could also be someone who works uh, a lot with, um, uh, let's look for the word, for relationship. You know, you, you put into, you put a lot of relationship into your work. You have a close relationship to your students. Um, sometimes you, you know, you just take your time to work on the relationship instead of working on um, things from the curriculum, you know? And in my opinion, and in my, um, and what I've experienced is that it comes back in a positive way. You know, there's a day there's, yeah. it's not possible to work on, on anything from the curriculum, some English topics, whatever. Um, and you take your time and you spend 45 minutes, minutes with, which is one unit, 45 minutes. Germany is a, how do you say one, a school lesson, like an English uh -huh. class takes 45 yeah. minutes. Okay. So you, taking 45 minutes to work in your relationship with the students, even though there will be a lack of, of English teaching, a 45 minute right. lack of English teaching, but in the end, it will work out well, you know, and that's my experience. So it's my personal value probably that I try to plant into the kids' hearts and um, it works out every now and then, I guess some people, you know, some people don't come back. I'd say most of them don't come back, but those who come back, um, it's not, it's, it, it's good for me, you know, it's respect for me and for my work. But the main part is if they want to come back, I'm, if they, if they call me and ask if they want to come, I'm trying to get them to come while I teach, you know, so the other kids see. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Hey, Ron, is this a real key poem that you yeah, got this is a real key. This is on death. I figured since we're talking about the death belt. Yeah. I, I want to dig into this a little bit. Um, are you familiar with Rilke, Matthias? Uh, I am, but I'm trying to find a German translation of, of uh, the I was, text. I was trying to find it too, and I was having a hard time. Okay. I'll just keep talking. I'll try to find, find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be so great to hear you um, just kind of read it and, and we'll just absorb um, that moment when you when you do and then you know ron can read it in english and then we can dig into it a little bit um, i think that would be really nice while while you're bringing that up uh, maybe for our listeners ron um share briefly i mean you brought rilke to me but maybe a little bit about rilke and, and why you've brought up this poem and um yeah introduce a little well, bit I was introduced to Rilke when I was a junior in high school and I was a, I was definitely not on probably the path towards a university. Um, in fact, I, I believe at the time that I would probably go into the military and a girlfriend at the time gave me letters to a young poet. And it was one of the texts that changed me into uh, wanting to be an English major, a lit major, and later uh, study poetry. So uh, Rilke is very dear to my heart. And it just so happens that Rilke is, is also really admired and respected by Bly and some of the, say, nouveau ecstatic poets. Uh, so he's in that vein of talking about and highlighting the divine in his poetry. So he's different than, than just the imagists or the realists that are very focused on the concrete world. And instead he's aiming at something that is transcendent in the same way that Rumi and Hafez and Lorca get at talking about those things that we'll just call it in for the context of this conversation, the fourth pillar, like what do we not talk about that exists that we all know exists, but we just don't put it into any sort of formal education because it's just too uh, abstract or intangible. And <clears throat> Rilke's legacy, his canon of work is always sort of aimed at that. And so choosing this poem called death is selected specifically because earlier we were talking about, about, about the death belt and, um, and death is one area that at least in the United States, we're not so good at, we're, we're not so good at talking about death, about metabolizing that in a healthy way, in a societal way. Yeah. Uh, we want to sort of yeah. create structures for people to get over it and get past yeah. it as if that's the thing to do rather than, embracing our grief and creating a room in our soul for that to live for each of those different, you know, uh, personalities of grief to live. Uh, we just want to move past it and beyond it. And Rilke says, no, we're going to spend some time here. Um, were you able to find it? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Can't find it in German. Uh, I was reading about the, the poem, like, two weeks before he actually passed away as he was his last journal entry um 
you know, at age 51. Um, so should you, you want to read it in, in English and we, we can discuss it a little bit? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, let's, let's go into it. Death. Come thou, thou last one, whom I recognize. Unbearable pain throughout this body's fabric. As I in my spirit burned, see, I now burn in thee. The wood that long resisted the advancing flames, which thou kept flaring, I now am nourishing and burn in thee. My gentle and mild being through thy ruthless fury has turned into a raging hell that is not from here. Quite pure, quite free of future planning. I mounted the tangled funeral pyre built for my suffering, so sure of nothing more to buy for the future needs. While in my heart, the stored reserves kept silent. Is it still I who there past all recognition burn? Memories I do not seize and bring inside. O oh life, O oh living, O oh to be outside, and I in flames, and no one here who knows me. Oh my Man, he, he's wow. just outrageous. So when did you come across this one? Um, it was about uh, eight fifteen today, my time. Today, <laughs> oh, man. like you know, I think that. I mean, how old are you, Ron? Uh, forty seven, forty seven. So you know, we've been talking a lot about you know getting older. Today, I kind of referenced it a little bit when you asked me, like, why wouldn't I go into education? Hard to know if it's like a cop-out, but there's definitely a different energy that like, I, I'm not 30. And, and when I read this and hearing you, when he says, so sure of nothing more to buy for future needs. Um, well, that's what I gravitated to when I was reading it. That's an undercurrent of what, of a lot of what we're talking about, right? Is we spend so much time planning for future needs and even the process of like parents wanting their kids to go to the gymnasium, like, so, you know, like, no, my kid has to go there. Right. And it's not really where they need to go. All of that is, is that energy of planning for future needs and, and, and being in a structure that has that plan that has a plan made out for us. And maybe that plan fits sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't um he's quite okay with it and and he contrasts it so well with the you know there seems to be so much uncertainty in the future until you calm down enough to bend your ear towards those silent reserves that you've you've made mm-hmm. right and, and and you can just like when we learn to trust what has been accrued we know that things will be okay. And, and, and that planning kind of takes a second place to the trust in the silent reserves. Yeah. The thing is that, well, speaking for where I live and how we live, I mean, it's the same in the States, I'm sure, but society creates 
pressure on us. And society kind of demands the way that the kids are planning their future. It demands or it demands how we teach them because we think that we know what the kids need for the future because society tells us they need to be financially stable. No one asks them to be happy, but they need to be financially stable. They need to be <laughs> well-educated, right? Um, you need to be very well-educated to make enough money for a living um, because you need money because living is expensive. So now we come back to society, right? And um, what we try to do or what we have to do is to create a mindset in our students because they will form the future. And if, if we want our kids to create future, we need to set or create a mindset for them or help them to create a mindset that will lead them to teach their kids that, or to create a world for their kids where being happy and being okay with what you do, whatever comes, is not, um, let me look up the word. It's not dependent from your level of education, how much money you make. And that, that is a big thing, of course, and it has always been a big thing, you know? Right. It's not new. It's not a new concept. But as I talked um, about uh, a changed view on performance, right? Right. And society and business and everything is actually demanding a change view on performance. We need to push that, right? Because if you look into big companies and you know job fields, there's a lot of things they tell us. They tell us teachers what the kids don't have. You know, they don't need perfect math, as I said, Carl. They don't need perfect English. They need to be able mm -hmm. to communicate well enough to be accepted, well, language-wise, but also culturally, you know? If you come to mm -hmm. China and you behave like an idiot, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't, so they need to know, yeah, that's a good example. You need to know how to behave and you, to live in another culture, um, to deal with other cultures. and. Um, so my question is, my question for you is, what I'm interested in is what is your, um, how do you see this change of performance in the States? As I said, um, we need to change your mindset back from the whole academic approach to general education, you know? What is your changed view on performance? Or what is your change? How would you change the concept of performance? We measure math, English, and everything. And um, we say, if someone's a straight-A student, he's ready for the world, right? We all know that it's not the truth. But how do, we, how do we work on that? How do you, how would you, Carl, or Ron, get kids into a changed concept of performance? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And it's really about the only thing that, that I work on. Um, I was just talking to my son last night and we were talking about how no one in my family really knows what I do. 
because it's impossible to, to describe it to anyone. But this language actually, you know, like I am a person who wants to change the view of performance and, and education. Like, like if that were a job, I could see myself trying to, you know, finagle that title onto my, onto my Google signature. <laughs> so, but uh, so the first thing that I would do is make learning relevant. And that yeah. might, that may seem like a cop-out response, but uh, because it's been said before, um, but I think that the way oh, that yeah. that happens is by making it real. And so with the advent of so much educational time moved towards the towards digital platforms, we've sacrificed engagement in tangible physical reality and to the detriment of our of of our students. Um, so it's it's normal for me to engage with high school students that were not allowed to play. Their playtime was cut short because they were sent to a, a daycare or a preschool where play was very controlled and confined, very limited to unreal plastic toys. And then they were put into an education system that said, okay, now it's time to learn. Not It's not time to play anymore. And then learning more and more looked like engagement in a digital platform. So it wasn't going outside and picking up rocks and throwing them into rivers and getting your feet soaked with fetid water and exploring for crayfish or crawdads in the rivers and investigating all the bugs and, and the wildlife so that, but when you actually went into text, you had a general concept of all of the life and biology in the world outside that is suffering right now. And so mm -hmm. in early childhood, we just need to move kids outside and mm -hmm. we need to delay the investment in devices because um, the concept in, that I hear from a lot of administrative people in education is that, and from legislature, is that our kids need to have digital literacy. We need to have digital literacy. We need to have computer skills and this and this and that. And it's just like when the amount of intelligence and ingenuity in, in a company like Apple or Google is spent on trying to make their platforms more and more intuitive, so much so that a baby who can't walk understands how to swipe to open up an iPhone and click on the icons that are necessary to access um, the games, right? That I, I watch happen all the time. And, and so more time spent in the digital world is not what we need. Um, what we need is for kids to have the time to develop their innate and personal curiosity for life. And that's not done with a prescribed curriculum. We need to allow the curriculum to follow the interest of the child. And Steiner is famous for saying this, that, that that's what you do, especially until, until the, the age of second teeth, right? When they're getting their second set of teeth in, that's what you're doing. You're just allowing the child to explore. And it doesn't mean that you're not you know, intensely and intently engaged in that work. But if you allow them to, to explore the world and to explore nature and to use real tools like hammers and nails and all this technology, by the time they get to high school, 
they have all that out of their system. They walk and they carry that knowledge viscerally in their bodies. And so when you ask them to then engage in abstract uh, learning tools like text and digital tools, they have a, a repository of relevant knowledge inside their bodies. And what I see in high school students right now is that they're not coming to class with that knowledge. They have a, mm -hmm. a huge vacancy of visceral education. And so my change view of concept in education is to, it might sound very Luddite in the idea that I'm rejecting you know, technology or microelectronics in, in this way, but it's coming from a perspective of saying, we have done these last two generations a disservice by over-investing in the abstract at an earlier and earlier age to the detriment of our visceral understanding. And that has an impact in critical thinking and empathy and social emotional learning later on. All of that suffers. So just because we have video games and uh, virtual reality doesn't mean that we should stop living in and with the environment that provides us the air that we breathe. <laughs> Why wouldn't we see uh, an erosion of environmental intelligence when you stop living in relationship with the thing that provides you your sustenance, whether that's food, diet, um, air, you know, pollution-free ecosystems, that's where we're at. So if we want that to be important to the next generation, then we need to remove ourselves from that obsession of like being locked into a smaller and smaller box and then actually going through the keyhole and then the box on the other side that we live in mostly is the virtual world, which seems so big. I mean, years ago, I think five, five or six years ago, they estimated that the entire surface area of the world of Minecraft was bigger than the surface of Neptune, right? So that's ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's, and I'm not saying that we should deny that that exists or we shouldn't Engage. I'm saying you don't need to teach that. That's going to exist no matter what. It's a part of our market. It's a part of our reality. Um, let's use it as a tool yeah. where we can, but stop replacing the, the relevant and the real and the visceral with obsession with safety for, for one thing. I mean, like, oh, kids can't use real hammers. They can only use this plastic impression of a hammer. That's not real. Yeah. And kids know it. The kids know it's not real. And because that there's no stake in them, in them using it because they can't do mm -hmm. anything with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but if you give them a real hammer, then it becomes something that they respect. We, we wonder why, why students at the middle school level don't know respect. And we're like, how do you teach respect? Well, here's one way to teach respect. Give them a hammer when they're four years old and allow them to live in a world with higher stakes because then respect comes from that. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a philosopher I had to work on um, when I was doing my exam at uni, a French philosopher called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he said, yeah. every yeah. human, yeah, you know, every human was born free, but he's in chains. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, those chains are actually, um, what they're socialized with and what their um, cultural status is, you know? As you said, for you, to, it's the plastic hammer, 
right? And those are the chains. Even mm-hmm. though we're born free, those are the chains we live in. That's why he um, he said, I don't know if it translated correctly, but something like, we need to go back to nature. Not back to nature, meaning climbing back on the trees and living like monkeys, but um, to go back to the natural status that we once were born with. Yeah, that, that even speaks to your curiosity for your origins, right? Because... Yeah. There's exactly. some there's some nature there. There's nature there that we don't talk about or that you have to be on your own to go explore because we didn't have a class called Origins in school. Yeah. Hey, um, man, such a great question, Matthias. Earlier, you told us about these circles that you guys do. I think you called it the council, where I would imagine this is kind of like at a teenager level. Um Am I correct? Yeah. Um, but can you can you kind of like tell us how often those happen? What are the dynamics? It, it's t- too easy for me to just imagine what it's like. And maybe it's not really like that at all. Um, you know, speak towards like, is it something that kids actually like or is it enforced upon them? Do they look forward to it? You know, um, do you get to see the rewards of that? How is that assessed? What is the frequency of those things? What is the reason for them? Uh, to what if point is it effective? To what point is it not? You know, I'd just like to know more about that. I think, I mean, those do not happen enough. Just getting people together. Like I notice it even as a dad, the times that we get together around the table mm-hmm. are so important and it's really hard to make happen. You have to have a lot of mm-hmm. intention and we do it around the table and we do it oftentimes when, when things get a little tricky and we just have to address things, you know, in the living room, uh, we gather and we talk and we hear everybody listens to each other. And every time that we've done that, it's been good. And it's been a reminder. This is what we need. We need to be talking and we need to learn how to talk. You know, when shit's really tricky as a family and everybody's rushed, it just comes down to like um, primitive uh, yelling and, and commanding and, you know, I'm the boss and, and you better do this. But, but those circles of conversation and those moments uh, that you're describing taking place in your school, uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, we try to start every week. We kick off every week um, in the first lesson on Monday with the class teacher because it's important for them to have a person to talk to. So every class teacher starts on the first lesson on Monday and, and that's for them to plan the week together. All right. So what's happening this week, which topics are we focusing on in math and English? Um, Are there any exams coming up this week? And this is the first circle that we do. Hmm. And then it's Mm -hmm. up to the teacher actually to, take some time of his or her lessons, um, English, math, whatever, for class council lesson. Okay, so instead of doing math, they sit together and the kids are bringing up things that are important for them. Sometimes we force them to do so. If there's kids having fights or whatever, we do a a class council and we have them, we make them talk about it, you know, Mm -hmm. we force them to. Um, so I'd say it happens every Monday and then it should happen. People having 
the people having conflict are forced in a public circle to address each other and to be addressed by their peers about the conflict? Nah, that's probably not in a way that you think. It's um, usually, you know, if conflicts happen in a classroom, a lot of people participate, a lot of people see it. And um, then we just take the, take the time and talk about it, you know? Of course, we talk to them one-on-one. Uh, but sometimes there's a need to, to discuss things that happen in front of the whole class, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not to um, uh, look up the word. It's not to expose the kids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's necessary, you know, we, we let them discuss it and we just listen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Sometimes we support some, we have a school social worker who, who comes over to help and to talk to the kids as well. Um, but there's a lot of work for the classroom teacher. Uh, and uh, we encourage them to take the time to work on those social skills as well. You know, take time off their, their English lessons and take this 45 minute lesson to talk about something that's important for them this week. Mm-hmm. So this actually, we had a, we had an assembly, uh, a school meeting um, yesterday and we give out like, look up the word is it motto like a yeah motto wow. a, a, um, a slogan for for the next coming weeks um we usually make it up because something happened or it's we find it important in some way and this week it's everyone's welcome at so it's very easy and basic so everyone can remember yeah. it. everyone's welcome at our school because yeah. we were having problems yeah with um, some students not accepting other kids because of where they come from, for example. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to give them a, a motto that is very easy to remember for them. Yeah. Is that issue that you're talking about, um, the acceptance of where people come from, like an immigration issue or a socioeconomic issue? Both. Both. Um, what? Both. Both. Doesn't matter. It, it means both of that. So we didn't address, um, we have a lot of refugees from Ukraine and from mm-hmm. other countries as well. Um, but it's actually not what we were addressing in the first, uh, at first. So um, basically it's, yeah, where they, where they come from, the way they are, you know, the way they feel, mm-hmm. the way they see themselves, um, doesn't matter. Just right. we have to accept each other the way we are and we need to, um, yeah, we need to actually, we need to address that a lot because, you know, it's teenagers. How, right. One of the things that Ron talked about that I just, you know, like trying to, trying to simplify things kind of like the motto, um, we'll, we'll, we'll sometimes say, well, we are plants. We, we are animals. We, we are the natural world. Right. And if that's really embraced, then radical change has to happen on a daily basis within our school systems. And it's just as easy as saying, let's spend more time outdoors. I believe in that so much. The natural world has so much to teach and we have distanced ourselves within our classrooms from that. Mm. And again, it's such a simple thing. More than just spend time in the natural world. 
understand how it works. Uh, learn the names of all the things, you know, there's, you just take a walk through the woods and you can learn. Um, but for as much as you've discussed education in Germany, it seems like that would be a big problem there as well, where it seems like you guys are inside the classroom apart from the natural world. Um, to what extent do you feel that it's a problem? Is it a problem? And to what extent are you guys successful at addressing the fact that, you know, um, kids know very little of the natural world because we've taken them away from it and locked them up in a classroom? Well, we're actually not locked up, especially after COVID. All the school officials said, okay, put a lot of focus on social learning, take them outside. I don't focus too much on theories in the classroom. We're actually encouraged to take them out and to work on this, on the curriculum outside or, mm. well, yeah, mm. physically outside, outside of the classroom, go into uh, companies, work with companies. We actually, last week I took a group of students to a woman, she's a gardener and she plants nice gardens around houses for rich people. Okay, so the topic was math in the garden. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so they were they were doing um, geometric tasks outside in the garden. So using what they learn in a in a practical way. So that's what we do. We we visit companies. We work with companies. We bring people in the school to the school. And there's basically nothing you cannot do. The problem is that. Um, there is a state curriculum, there is a final exam, and they need to be able, or we want them to be able to accomplish the goals that this curriculum or the state gives us, okay? Sure. So, um, but, but it sounds like that, you have enough freedom to... Yeah, we do. ...to elastically move towards that. That's true, but we need to find the time to work on theory as well. As much as we love to take the kids outside, and we all do, there's a lot of colleagues who love to do that. I mean, there's always colleagues who, you know, they go the easy way. It's easy to teach in the classroom, to finish your time in the morning, you know, be free in the afternoon, I tell you. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and uh, and there's, it's, it's effort, you know, it's a lot of effort to organize, but um, I feel that my teachers, like 80% of them are super willing to do so. Well, that's, and, that's encouraging very much. Yeah, and, and uh, if you focus on the outcome, if, you, if you're not looking towards results that you can measure right away, but you trust that one day, like I did, you will see students coming back and you learn and you see they're happy, they're successful in what they do, even though they're driving, uh, you know, they're driving uh, drivers for a logistics company and not academics somewhere, you know. But yeah. if it means they're happy and they come back and they feel that it's important to visit you, then that's enough, you know, that's the result that you want to have. That's the result that is not measurable the day after you learn something, but take your time, trust, and um, it'll pay back, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. 
you seem incredibly positive. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, <laughs> it's good. And, and like every time I, I try to like bring out something from you, you're just very positive. Um, and, and I appreciate that. I think I come from that place as well, but I need you to just dig in. I mean, you're the vice principal. What are some things that at a, at your school level, but maybe even as a father in Germany, like that you're just concerned about that, like, or maybe even pissed off about how things are working right now. And um, that maybe you have the power to change them technically, you know, in the position that you have, but you just can't. And it just drives you nuts. Give me something, Matthias. <laughs> well, something that, something that I have to deal with every day, it's a lack of teachers that we have, right? We're well paid. It's a good job. I told you, everyone says uh, your te a teacher's life's not too hard. You know, you teach in the mornings, you're free in the afternoons and blah, blah, blah. And so I wonder why aren't not more people becoming teachers since it's so easy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lack of teachers that I have to deal with every day. If someone calls in sick, that means basically that I have to jump in. So why, where does the lack of teachers come from? So the questions, I guess it's a, it's a lack of, um, I have to look up the word. Um, well, I could say it's a lack of respect for the job, for the profession as a teacher. It's not a very um, prestigious. Yeah. No, 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 oh. no. It is actually. Um, I know it's different in the States, but you know, it's, it's, I'd say it's well, it's well paid. It's valued financially, but it's not valued like Social. socially, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's not there's not too many reasons to become a teacher these days. I would say. Um, How? What are we talking about in a country that came up with the word kindergarten? <laughs> yeah. Or, or that, that, it has like, you know, these very influential um, personas in the world of education. Like, yeah. is this a recent phenomena that we're talking about? I would think you guys are just bubbling with people that have a natural passion and inclination towards becoming teachers. Yeah, we, uh, we call ourselves the country of poets uh, and the country of, of thinkers, you know. And um, in German, it's Land der Dichter und Denker. Um, basically, we're not anymore. Um, <laughs> I have I have no clue. It's um, it's a lack of a lack of acceptance as a teacher, I guess, socially. And another thing that really pisses me off because you ask for it is if you, if you look at the kids nowadays and the way they are raised, you know, how would anyone be such an idiot and become a teacher and move into a classroom full of those? crazy kids that we have you know i mean kids are kids you know the way they behave but sometimes i just don't get it you know the way they behave and if you look at their parents if you meet their parents sometimes it makes it easier <laughs> to understand why they behave like they do because that's the thing that pisses me off because parents don't care anymore there's so many parents so many cases where i can tell it's not the kids you know it's right. the world that they come from right it's a lack of education yeah. it's a lack of care it's a lack of love and uh yeah so that pisses me off as well 
Today, I, I asked the kid to write something down and he said, I don't have pens. Now, I could be mad at the kids for not having a pen. But basically, I have to be mad at his parents first because they don't care enough to get him a pen. Because pens, they have to bring. Yeah. I don't know if it, how it is in the States. I know other countries, they have, it's all. Uh, pens are provided. Yeah, exactly. But not here. You just have to bring your stuff. And um, so if it's, yeah. if it's about a pen, it's the parents' business. Uh-huh. And I could tell that 20% of the kids don't bring their stuff to school every day. Yeah. Ron, you, you often don't talk too much about parents um in this chapter i i I, it's fascinating actually i'd love to know more but like i know you just because of the nature of the contractual work let's call it that you have um with the charter school the high school um in denver and then also like the early childhood (laughs) unfortunately you don't have more of a presence or the possibility of a relationship like the whole system has blocked you from nobody knows you you don't know the parents like all of that's just incredibly unfortunate very different from matthias where like you know and correct me if i'm wrong matthias you have the authority to communicate directly to them and say hey um so whether they listen or not that's a whole other thing but you have access to that communication and it's expected you know what but uh ron like are you disappointed is this a recent phenomena of just bad parenting you know and their parents are to blame for things that you're seeing in the kids or what's your take on everything that matthias is putting out well it's it's really interesting matthias that you're that you're highlighting what we could call a lack of parenting and i think that that is absolutely true in the united states is that parents don't have to be parents anymore. And there's not a social expectation for parents to be parents. In fact, it's it's quite the opposite. There's the parents in many ways are giving the kids to the system so that the system can be the parent because the parent wants to be the friend. And somehow our social structure has evolved in this way to where the parents can say, no, I'm not accountable. I'm going to put all of the onus on the teacher. It's the teacher's responsibility, right? And so the parents don't provide the structure of parenting that we would have expected, um, say, you know, two, three, four decades ago. And then in the United States, at least, there's this compounding problem that legally we have removed any of the leverage that teachers have within the classroom. So the teachers really can't do the work of a parent, that traditional work of a parent, right. because they have no legal authority to do so. And if they were to engage in that, they would likely be fired or sued, right? Mm-hmm. Can you give an example um, you know, that, that Matias can at least ponder and we can see if that's the case over there as well? Like what, what, do, what do teachers not have authority to do it, but should be able to do since there's no parenting happening at home? Well, you know, I've said this before, but in the United States, a, a basic teacher licensing education at the college level, a bachelor's in education is primarily focused um, very, very minimally on pedagogy, 
but mostly on classroom management. Like this is how you keep kids in line, right? And that classroom management skills have become less and less punitive because the social structure has said, no, that sort of punitive measure, let's say, I don't know, suspension from school. No, we, we're not going to suspend kids anymore. We don't suspend them. So you can't, and you can't just kick kids out of your class. You got to figure out how to engage them. So if one student is being super disruptive, there's no one to call at the school and say, this student is disruptive. Um, I need them removed from my classroom because they're inhibiting the learning process for the 30 other students, right? Yeah, the, the fault is that. Right, it's the teacher's fault for, the, for, for the child's behavior is the teacher's fault. And the teacher could, can try to make a plea to parents, but parents have already decided in most cases, the parents are like, well, that's not my risk. What do you want me to do about it? They're at school. So if they're having a problem in your class, you mm -hmm. deal with it. <laughs> so, so there's mm -hmm. no accountability at home. And the teachers aren't afforded a, a system that is that has a rigorous accountability measure. Like there's no real consequence for not doing what's being asked of you. So why would they do it? So what we have is well, students let me, who let, students, okay, okay. and I think that this is the nature of children and young people in general is that you're entering the world and what you do, it is your nature to explore all the boundaries, find where the boundaries are so that you can mm -hmm. be as successful as possible within whatever the, the environment that you're working in. And if those boundaries are really small, it means, okay, here's what I have to work with. If the boundaries are so ambiguous or so distant that, that there's no, that there is no boundary, well, then that's the world that you live in. And so we have a system where there's not clear boundaries for the most part for kids. And so they're going to, they're, they're not going to build creative problem solving within a, a structure that isn't going to hold them accountable to that. And like you said, Matthias, it's not the student's fault. It's not the child's fault that the adults in their life or the supposed adults in their lives aren't providing them clear boundaries on how to be successful socially how to be successful academically, how to be successful spiritually, if we want to go through that. Why would anyone want to go into teaching? This is the question. Why would anyone want to go into teaching when mm -hmm. you're going to get that? When that, yeah. when there's no clear expectation and the teacher has no real authority to solve problems. Right. We are, or, or to be creative. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, we have a, we have a school law, you know, um, for Germany and for each state. Now a state says that the job of a teacher is to educate and to parent the kids, you know? Education is the school's job and we share the upbringing, the parenting with the parents, okay? That's what we share. And mm. the school law says that we share that because school is not only about education, but it's also about mm. parenting in a way, you know, bring them up in a, in a specific way. And the law says that parents and schools share that. And there's a disbalance. Mm. It has moved from a focus on education, um, at least at my school, towards parenting. Wow. And, there's two, and there's two reasons. It's the kids. And the other reason is the parents, the lack of parenting by the parents. That's what I feel at least, you know? When right. I talk to the parents and I ask for consequences, they expect me right. 
to come up with adequate consequences for whatever the, the kids did, you know. But the kids come to school not being able to say thank you, not being able to be quiet when an authority asks them to be quiet, right? On the other hand, we give them, or the law gives them a lot of power to make decisions, right? As I said earlier, there is a recommendation to which school they should go after elementary school, but the parents decide. Now, let's say you have a secondary um, school student about 12 years old, and you find out he's got a, a disability, like a learning disability, you know? So he's bad with numbers, really bad. So he will probably not be able to make it to a degree because of math or because he is emotionally not stable. So you want support for him you, or you want to send him to a special school. Even if it's obvious that this student has a disability, as long as the parents don't agree, right. he will fail and fail and fail because you're not allowed to give him the special treatment that he needs to send him to a special school or to put him into a course, into a classroom where there are teachers who can work. Right. So basically, if the parents believe their kid is absolutely fine and normal and healthy and it's all good, um, he will be in a normal classroom and he will fail. He will most probably fail. So he will spend his time in school and after grade 10 right. or 13, whenever... He will fail the degrees most probably, and he will leave school without an exam or a grade, you know? So there's a lot of power given to the parents. And that's also a call, as you said, it's pissing me off as well. <laughs> well, and, and what you're, what you're describing, I mean, Ron, don't you feel like the whole uh, shut up culture that we have here? Like, can you imagine a system in which that you receive, I don't know, this very formal notice. Uh, how old are the kids when they receive that recommendation? Like that I'm taking as your son is not going to be this thing that is very celebrated. They should go down this uh, lesser pathway. Like here, it just seems that that would be like full of everybody offended. Well, they, they would. And, and we even have jokes and satire that's produced at least based on on the U.S. culture, that pokes fun at the fact that the reality for students is that the parent is always right, but the parent doesn't have to be accountable to anything, right? And the teacher is accountable to everything that the parent doesn't do. And that's an impossible situation. And at this point, it has nothing to do with education, right? It's all about social forms. And... How are we accountable to each other socially? And if there's no system that provides any boundaries or consequences for breaking those social norms, then kids will break them, right? That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're supposed, they're supposed to be challenging the system and saying, what can I do and what can't I do? And if there's no consequences, then, then the teacher has to creatively come up with alternative currencies or systems of leverage that provide an incentive that's legal <laughs> uh, for, right. for them to really adhere to those social norms. So a tangible example of the way that that's been done recently in my high school class is that we built a clay 
oven. So the students participated in building the clay oven. And then we uh-huh. uh, built a fire in the clay oven and we made bread. And the students that contributed to working on the clay oven, instead of sitting on the couch on their cell phones, um, and the students that contributed to making the bread, well, they got to eat it. And when it was time to eat, of course, <laughs> right. all the students that have been sitting on the couch for the last two weeks while all this work has been, been being done, you know, checked out on their cell phones, well, they want to eat food because that's what their expectation is, is that, oh, I'm hungry. That's food. I deserve it. And I said, no. I said, what did right. you do? Did you help with the oven? Did you help with the food? Did you clean up the mess? Did you, what, in what ways did you contribute to this community yeah. endeavor? And if you didn't, then right. you don't get to eat. This is a grasshopper right. and ant Aesop's fable situation where it's just like the grasshopper right. comes in in the winter, knocking on the door saying, you know, um, now I'm hungry. And, and, the, and the ant says, well, what were you doing all summer? You were dicking around, mm-hmm. you, you know, lazy, you were lazily, you know, basking in the sun while nice. I was doing all the work. We have so many parables to describe this situation. So it's not a new situation for humanity. We know what this is. We've seen it before. And it's just a denial uh, of our culture at this point in time to engage in that learning, to remember that that's something that humans will do. Like humans in general, you, you, uh, uh, maybe it's 80% of the population is going to take advantage of all the loopholes that exist. And then they're going to want to be fed for doing no work in the end. Uh, and and so, well, why would we expect anything different? And 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 why would we blame the kids for it when it's the system, and and the relationship between parents and administrators and legislators that has created the insanity that we're in right now? Well, let me let me share a little bit. I I think it's a little bit of devil's advocate. It's going on with my youngest, Zoe, uh, nine years old, much like his father. Okay. So I get this letter from the school and all this stuff. Zoe doesn't know how to play. He doesn't have sportsmanship and it's an issue. And, you know, it's starting to happen in the classroom as well. And, you know, he's bragging and putting others down and blah, 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 blah. Well, um, you know, I'm talking about this a little bit with my mom, right. And who had to deal with me going to school (laughs) and, routinely was called into the school and my mom's response. And I, and I did not know this, but it was so articulate and she was so clear. She's like, yeah, every time they call me in, I go in and say, well, he doesn't do that at home at home. We take care of him and we don't call you guys. Um, so can you guys figure it out and stop calling me? And that's exactly <laughs> kind of what you guys are kind of describing. Like, I don't think that she was a bad parent but she did have expectations for the school to deal with me. And at the same time was also dealing with me. And so anyway, that, that like really kind of hit home with me to where I am trying to be a good parent and I am trying to like do things, but I'm all, like the first time was okay. But by the second or third time that I got noticed about Zoe, not knowing how to play, it's starting to really piss me off. Because if I was on the school playground as one of the fucking monitors that don't even play with the kids, let alone teach them how to play, it's just this rudimentary, like, sit down, time out. 
um, I have reason to believe that they could do a much better job at teaching my son how to play within their social system. Um, and granted, uh, we've really had to up the ante here at home. I recognize behavior patterns of him not knowing how to play. And so we've started to play risk on a routine basis just to uh, squelch all of that emotion that he brings in. And, and, and I appreciate the school reaching out, but you know, you, you know what I'm describing? It's like, I want to help out the school, but I think the school could do a better job and the school wants me to do a better job. And so there's this interesting, you know, tension yeah, I, I would ask that the word play here is really interesting and, and it's a hot button for me because play is absolutely necessary in development and it's pretty much not allowed. So I would wonder what the school's version of the word play is. And you'd have to get to that, to the bottom of that, because most, most educators that I know and that I come across they they have no idea how to play in what field do you have people saying you know this child doesn't know how to play but the people who are assessing that don't know how to play so how could they be assessing that correctly you know like what they mean and we know what that what they mean what they mean is that he's not obeying the social norms or the rules that the school has created around the idea of the wordplay, right? <laughs> and so he's he's he right. is challenging the boundaries. And mm -hmm. like I said, this is what students do. So where is the system of consequences for Zoe for not participating in the social norms? Yeah. What are your thoughts, Matthias, with the that kind of a scenario or well, we're dealing with exactly happening? with exactly the same problem. See. We are a school that has to, every school day starts at eight and, and ends at four. Of course, especially for the call, small kids, that's too long. And um, we have times where they play on a school playground, just like your kid does. And there are people from the community looking after them, not the teachers, right? Because it's basically mm. now a break and then their break. So basically, they're having a break. Mm. They're being supervised by um, people that are working for the community who are not professional educators. Mm. And it's exactly mm. it, it opened it opened my eye, Carl. What you said is, or what what you all said is that um, basically, um, it's not that they cannot play; it's that they are not obeying the laws. And the thing is, at home, Ron, like you said, you play with them but ours our, our the, the people who work there they don't play with them they just stand there guard them look after them and they do something wrong they tell them they don't play with them right and that's the difference and uh the thing is that we um as teachers as professional educators we expect them to come to school being able to follow the rules because that's part of education right and we expect the education to happen at home at least most of it the education in, in terms of how to behave and how to adapt um, rules and norms that are generally well accepted in a, in a society, you know, like behaving well, um, listening to authorities, things like that. We expect them to know about this. And we don't expect them to know all about it, but 
a specific level and some people are below that level, you know? Mm -hmm. Those are the kids that I was talking about earlier and some are down here, you know? And there's a lot of focus on parenting and there's too much focus on parenting. And I know I repeat myself, but I don't think that's the case for you, Carl, in this case, you know, that there's a lack of parenting right? Because your son's not able to play, as you said. But generally speaking, and as a principal or a vice principal of a school, there are examples where it is correct that there should be, just like in your case, they should, or in your example, they should play with them, you know? They should play with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's too many cases where the kids are coming to school, and they're having a a lack of basic education that is taught at home. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you understand? Was it, does it make any sense? Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, I, I feel challenged on a routine basis. I mean, so much, so much of my friendship and, and the professional work that Ron and I have, have done together. And in this podcast, we haven't talked too much about it, but the three of us are fathers and that conversation is crucial yeah for as much as i learned to be an educator with ron i i mean his kids are almost symmetrical to it he has two boys that are three or four years older than mine um, maybe more five or six something like that but anyway one stage ahead of mine and we've talked for the last 12 years of how to be a dad and how to bring in um reading uh, how to bring in music, what to look for, how to play, how to get them connected into the natural world. What is the right timing for, um, you know, the whole usher and await conversation? Like, how do I usher the child into a certain behavior and when do I wait for it? You know, and, and Carl's been able to watch me about- make all the mistakes first and then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been just a breeze. You know, every time I bring this up, I just, it, I feel like I'm emphasizing the fact that I have had what you didn't get to have. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, the upbringing that, that a lot of us had, I mean, Carl, you mentioned playing games at home. Well, when is that happening in the homes of our students? Is it happening? Are the right. students coming from family structures that are teaching, you know, here's, here's how to have gratitude. Here's what you say when someone, you know, opens the door for you or someone helps you out. Do you say, thank you? Uh, Do you just really basic community social norms? I mean, I mean, that's a lot of it. And the question is if they're not getting it at home, what's the process of teaching that in, in school when they're at school with their teachers for a certain amount of time, but then, then they go back to their other environment where the boundaries are different and they don't have to be accountable to that maybe. And they're moving back and forth between those worlds. And so all kids, all, all humans can adapt to that. They can code switch when they go to school and say, thank you. And please, and all these things, if that's expected and there's natural consequences, if they decide not to follow those norms, but if we have a system that says, oh, no, those, those consequences are, that's too much. We can't expect that out of our students because that's not being socially, culturally responsive to where the student is coming from. Well, then why wouldn't we see a natural erosion of all of that? 
we have made the bed that we lie in uh, with all of this. It, it's our fault as uh, as adults and generationally, we've we have not done the work to maintain that those social structures and the accountability that's necessary on a community level uh, to maintain that, even if it's going to, you know, not exist or be uh, very deficient within the home atmosphere. Well, um, one of the things that has become evident for a long time when I go into the parent teachers meetings and is that I'm like my, both of my kids are academically successful, which is just bizarre because we half-ass homeschooled them in China. We laid down somewhat foundational work and the school's benefiting from it. Okay. So all of my parent teacher meetings only have to do with their socialization skills. That's pretty much all I talk about. And a lot of that happens in the lunchroom and in the recess. And I'm highlighting this because Matias was talking a little bit about these um, external volunteers that kind of come in when teachers are on their break. Well, same thing's happening here. So the teachers that are reporting what's happening on the playground have never seen either of my kids, let alone have as anybody's <laughs> done surveillance of the monitors that are also um, local volunteers that I think get wages or whatever. And so I realized that the teachers do not play with the kids. And, and furthermore, the other thing that I wanted to add here is that I, the, the, in my last parent teacher meeting, I asked them about eating behaviors <laughs> and the teacher had no idea. Right. And I said, don't feel bad. I kind of told their kid, but I was basically getting at, uh, my question was simply this, like, um, are kids expected to finish what they serve themselves? Um, not really sure. I was like, okay, well, um, are kids allowed to just throw away all the food that they put on their plate? Pretty, pretty sure we don't. Uh, oh, okay. If you could answer that question to me, because I'm really starting to see those behaviors at home and I'd like that to stop. Um, because I think that as an educational entity, we should be educating on food consumption, how to eat healthy, Right. Well, and how to have as respect much as the, for food. I mean, that that's that's a huge part right. of it, right? Eat healthy and to not just throw things away, right? Well, it's really hard when I find out like the other day, like some of the free and reduced lunch kind of sort of thing that's taking place in the school is like these snacks that are really, really not healthy. And our kids like at, at home only eat home cooked food. And, you know, that really was highlighted when, when they were going to go to the organic fair and the school sent home a notice. I don't know if you I told did. you about this, yeah. but it said, beware, because at the fair, they only have organic food and your kids might not be used to it. So you might want to pack a lunch for them. I was like, oh, God. It's, oh, it's God. well, I, I'll, I'll go a little bit further. One, 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 more, one more point about this eating thing, right, that I thought of when Matias was sharing about the playground. I was like, really, kids don't know what it's like to eat um, with others, like the socialization around uh, eating. You just know, especially at a middle school level, like the conversation's not happening. It's mostly like, eat real quick, run out to the playground and play basketball, right? And we dealt, I dealt with this, like when I was, you know, in the... Um, kindergarten in China in which, you know, like not every meal, but every now and then we would have special meals where we would eat together and we would have conversation. And so much of the idea was to teach kids how to have a conversation while eating, right? Because you have this routine habit 
well, kids don't are not eating with their families. Well, in school, they if we're going to really take on this role of parenting, then we should show them what it's like to, before we eat, maybe we all say thanks, we eat together, and we have a conversation. That's far more important to me whether or not they read or not. Well, so you asked for a specific exa- example of where the law becomes confounding. And in the United States, there's a real problem where we have made that throwing away or disrespect of food systemic because when we socially want to provide food for uh, a free and reduced lunch for all the students that that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, the law is that the student has to take one part each of the nutritional balanced meal. But so they have to take a full apple. They have to take the carbohydrate. They have to take the protein, but they don't have to eat any of it, but they have to take it. And so this is actually a problem with, it's part of big Hmm. agriculture because big agriculture says, we want a guaranteed market for all of this food within the system. So that, so when, when, when we create a law that says all of these people that fall into this category of socioeconomic disadvantage are going to be provided this meal and the, and big agriculture says, okay, well, that's worth this amount to us. We want to guarantee that we're getting all of that money. So the school and lunch providers uh, are mandated to make sure that the kids all take all of these portions, but there is absolutely no accountability on what they actually consume. So all of that food then goes into the trash, right? And this is what's amazing is it, so the school can't say, okay, do you want the apple or do you not want the apple? It's a full, it's a great apple. And the kid puts it on their plate. They take it to their, the lunch table, and then they go and deposit this beautiful apple that has no bite taken out of it into the garbage can. Right. And it's a way to systemically throw away and just move a lot of food uh, through the distribution channel. Right. It's not consumed. It's just wasted. Now, if you want to, if there's another law that says, and by the way, once it goes onto a student's plate, you cannot take that apple and say, well, it's still a great apple. We're just going to put it back in line and leave it for someone who actually wants the apple, right? It has to go, it's mandated to go into the garbage. And once more is that we, it's illegal to then take that food waste and then cycle it into say- animal husbandry. So we have to, my family has to actually work below the radar in the lunchroom at my wife's school to take bins of food refuse and feed it to our chickens. So we have to do this all under the table, right? Because it's not legal to take that food and then feed it to chickens. So it's systemically, it's a system of waste, of making sure that enough waste exists so that big agriculture gets their money, right? And what it's teaching our kids is to ultimately disrespect food. So, oh my God. What's going on in Germany along those lines, Matthias? Well, um, we have a lot of ways. We have cafeteria in school as well. And um, it's close, even though it's probably not that. um, No one, see, no one cares if I take out some stuff for my chicken. I even have chicken, three. (laughs) Um, Sweet, right? Yeah, (laughs) three. And uh, that's one point. No one would care, but the law or the rules are about as strict as yours, I'd say. For us here, it's harder 
um, to find companies to cook in school. You know, to we don't cook ourselves. It gets delivered by um, a big kitchen somewhere around here, and they deliver the food freshly cooked. And um, but it's hard to find a quality that that's good enough. You know, so it's good enough, but it's all you know, good enough. It's not good. Yeah. So um, that's um, that's a problem in a way that some of the kids, it's it's the only real meal some of the kids eat a day, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the only warm meal they eat. And uh, it shouldn't be that shitty. Um, so I don't eat there. That's probably. <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> it's OK. It's OK, Thanks. but it's not good. Um, we're teaching, of course, we're also teaching them about food and about eating behavior as well. It's also a point that um, is basically in the parents' um, responsibility a lot, not all of them, not, not all of it. Um, but so the theory should be ours, you know, teaching them about calories, about carbohydrates and stuff, blah, blah, blah. But being willing or knowing about like the basic knowledge about vitamins about healthy food should be provided by home instead they buy a packet of or they some of some of the kids bring how do you call it we call it chips uh, um potato chips yeah 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 like a bag of potato chips um and obviously it's bought by their parents and given to them you know they bring it to school um (laughs) some yeah so um Teaching about uh, nutrition, teaching about food and eating behavior is also a big topic here. Even though I believe, I've been to the States a couple of times and I believe that our eating behavior is still a little more healthy than yours. We have a local farmer who delivers fruit Mm. each week, fresh fruit um, from his fields. So the apples grow like a mile away from the school and he brings them to Mm. school. Every week he brings a box of uh, like a big box of uh, apples for the kids and they're free. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you definitely brought it around to a positive note. I like that. Hey, um, (laughs) it's been really beautiful uh, hanging out three hours of conversation with you, Matias. Um, Yeah, this has been wonderful and insightful. Um, I appreciate you reaching out. For now, I'm going to wrap it up and just thank you um, and our listeners. As always, uh, we've got a great What's Up thread. Maybe, Matias, if you'd like to join us from here on out where we discuss with other people that are listening to these podcasts, just send us an email to future at Originate Eve. And uh, I'll say goodbye for now. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, thanks, Matias. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Good night and good day, all of you. (laughs) Take care.